Okay, Revelation 14, we're going to read the whole chapter. Let's do that. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. Uh, they were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair. And he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the spirit, they'll rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. I looked And there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, And blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Need I say more? Um, As I was preparing to preach today on this chapter, I just happened to to flick onto Facebook. And I saw uh, an image that someone had posted there. Um, There was an image of of two babies in the womb. and they were having a conversation. The conversation went something like this. I might not be able to remember it precisely 
right? Conversation goes, hey bro, do you think there's life after birth? Do you believe in mum? It went on to say. And the, the, the second, well, I suppose the twin, uh, responded, no, I'm an atheist. Um, I mean, have you ever seen mum? And uh, obviously, uh, well, make of that what you will in terms of having a dig at atheism, but an interesting idea. Babies in the womb have little um, awareness of, of physical realities that are actually incredibly close at hand. Uh, they're not yet aware of the, the, the physical reality outside of the womb once they've been born and they come into the world and the first thing they do is they see it all and then they cry. Wonderful. Um, in the same way, for us, there are spiritual realities that are very real, they're very there, but we don't yet see them. Spiritual realities that we'll, we'll look at as this passage unfolds. I think that's part and parcel of why it's here. There are things that are unseen. And the book of Revelation draws back the curtain, as it were, to give, it a gl- give, it, give us a glimpse of things that would otherwise remain unseen. Things that we will see, at least some of them, that we will see one day, but we don't know, we don't see them with our own eyes right now. And they're truth then that this Bible, uh, this book rather in the Bible, is reminding us of. So John... He wasn't just writing kind of into thin air as as it were. He was writing to seven churches in Asia Minor at the turn of the first century. And they needed reminding of some spiritual realities. They needed to be strengthened in their faith. And therefore they needed to be reminded of things. And we see right at the beginning of the book of Revelation in chapter 1 and verse 3, part of the purpose of this whole book it says there in verse 3 it's a promise really to all of us blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near the the purpose that john had in writing this book the purpose indeed that god has in giving it to us is that in hearing it and in reading it we might take to heart what's contained within it that actually we might be blessed. That actually we might be like those seven churches back in, uh, back in modern day Turkey. That we might be strengthened. That we might be encouraged. That we might be built up. That we might be able to see spiritual realities. Not yet with physical eyes. But things that are, are real and God wants to remind us of them. We're going to look at uh, three things that this passage reminds us of. And the first thing it reminds us of is heaven. This is a wonderful reminder in, in the first section, verses 1 to 5. Um, if you've been here previously, when we've looked at the, the recent preceding chapters, we've, we've had some pretty grueling chapters to work through. Chapter 12, we were introduced, well, to a lot of things, but we were introduced to the dragon. The dragon is an image for Satan. Then we were introduced after that to to two beasts, the beasts out of the sea and the beast out of the earth. Uh, the beast and the false prophet, as they're also known, kind of agents of Satan to distract people from uh, from God and from God's kingdom. And so almost coming out of those two chapters, it's ah, oh, coming to the beginning of chapter 14 is like, 
catching a breath of fresh air. Oh, that's wonderful. Right, I can, I can breathe again. Why is that? Then I looked and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. It's, it's, it's reminding us of the glory of God. It's, it's reminding us of what we've also encountered, already encountered in chapters four and five. A vision there of God's radiant glory in the throne room of heaven. So as we get here to the beginning of the chapter, it's a, it's a reminder of that glory. It's refreshing. It's one of the most fascinating descriptions of worship. We see the Lamb and with him the, the 144,000. This is a, a symbolic number representing all of God's people. And, and what are they doing in glory? Well, John hears something and he can't quite explain what he's hearing, but he, it's revealed to him as he goes through. It's, it's a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters. That's what he says at the start. Like a loud peal of thunder. Sound was like that of harpists playing their harps. And it becomes clear what he's hearing. It has, it's, it's this dramatic, it's this uh, vivid and powerful. He says, and they sang a new song. He's, he's hearing all of God's people singing. And it's such an awesome sound that he can't quite describe it. Again, that's the, the use of apocalyptic language, really vivid language, rushing waters, a loud peal of thunder, harpists playing their harps. What is this? It's the people of God singing a new song. They're, they're always and for eternity having revealed to them God's goodness over and over and over. And so there's another new song coming from their from their mouths that only they can learn they can only only the redeemed can learn this only the 144,000 only the population of heaven can learn this song because only God's people are freshly having revealed to them God's never ending and eternal goodness that's the that's the picture that we see there we see what they're what they're doing they're singing we also see um, what they are like they're they're a pure people They've kept themselves pure. They're following the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men. They belong to God and to the Lamb. No lie is found in their mouths. They are blameless. A wonderful, refreshing reminder of God's glory. Well, question arises, why do we need reminding of this? Well, I've already hinted at it, I suppose. But another way of asking the same question, Well, how should the church respond in the light of this how should the church be in the light of this remember that that a lot of the churches to which john was writing were incredibly under the cosh you might remember casting casting our minds back to the early chapters of the churches in smyrna and philadelphia and pergamum in particular they were under pressure they were people who were experiencing persecution because they followed Jesus. They were poor. They were afflicted. They were slandered. They were going through the mill. And for some of them, Jesus was sharing a message. And there's more suffering that actually you're going to experience in this life. And, and so what's the message of Revelation to churches that are going through that kind of pressing that kind of hardship, being tested, and some even being martyred. Well, you can imagine for those churches, the question arising, is it all worth it? 
Is it worth holding on? Is it worth us keeping our lives pure? Is it worth us following the Lamb wherever He goes? Is it worth us refusing to lie? Refusing to bow down to, to Caesar or other gods? Is it going to prove to be worth it? In the end. Because we're really suffering right now. We feel weak. We feel hard pressed on every side. We feel vulnerable. And hemmed in, in a society that does not recognize God and is making our lives incredibly difficult. And I believe that these verses here at the beginning of chapter 14 are a reminder. They're a reminder, going back to verses, uh, chapters 4 and 5, as I referred to earlier on, of what is to come. The glory that is to come. Is it worth it? Yes. Keep going. This is a message to potentially weak and weary believers. Weak and weary, but still worshipping believers. And they need encouragement again. They need reminding of where this is all heading. Of the inheritance that will one day completely be theirs. So they could be asking themselves that question. Is it worth it? And the answer is yes. Another question that might spring to mind amongst those churches and for us here is is will we make it we're holding on what's the guarantee as it were that our lives will be kept safe in all the hostility we're experiencing right now and then again it's a reminder it's a reminder of chapter 7 which is another picture of this heavenly community enjoying God's presence and God's protection for all time. He's going to spread his tent over us, it says. And every tear is going to be wiped away. Every, every pain, the sun's not going to beat upon you anymore, it's saying. You're, you're my people and this complete number of my people, this symbolic 144,000, all God's people, yet you're not going to be snatched out of my hand. You've had to go through chapter 12. You've been experiencing the work of the dragon. You've had to go through chapter 13. You've been experiencing the pressure and the temptation and the hardship that comes from the beast number one and then beast number two. But know this. No one who belongs to God will be left out. No one who belongs to God will be snatched away. Whatever happens in this life, you're my people and I'm spreading my tent over you. I'm protecting you. And this is where you will be. Then I looked. And there before me was the Lamb. Standing on Mount Zion. And with him. All of his people. So, so how should the church be? In the light of what we've just read there. Well whatever's going on. This is encouraging us to be. Confidence. Not always feeling chest puffed out wonderful, but confident. And perhaps even therefore with a measure of calm, even in the midst of a crisis or in the midst of a storm. Yet we, we know where this is heading. We know where our lives are going. We know 
where ultimate destiny lies. We know what is the inheritance for God's people. Therefore, whatever we're going through, let's be confident. Let's not throw away our confidence, in other words. There can be any number of situations and circumstances thrust upon God's people, causing us to feel shaken, causing us to feel uncertain. Ah, but there are things here, John is reminding us, of which we can be very certain. So a refreshing reminder of heaven, a refreshing reminder of glory, the hope that we have in Jesus, in that we can be confident. In that we can also be confident not only that that's to come, but actually that we get a flavour of it in the here and now, that we, we know uh, God's working amongst us right now. We know that's to come, but there'll be ways in which we experience that. I hope that's part of our experience in worship. We see this incredibly wonderful, confident scene of worship. And again, John can't quite describe it. He can't find a language for it. But it's, it's majestic. I believe that we can have a measure of that in our experience as a church right now with whatever we're going through. Sometimes there are occasions where, as God's people, we're singing and we've, we've sung a song on the screen. Um, we've sung a song that we all know. And then what emerges is, ah, oh, God's just causing us to continue to sing uh, out in other languages that God gives or... Um, or in English, but but new songs, and as you as we as we kind of listen, that's that's happening right across uh, the congregation. A, a new song, the sound of rushing waters, perhaps, as we all encounter God afresh, His goodness to us, and it pours out in in new creative uh, worship. I believe this shows us that heaven again, heaven isn't boring. Um, heaven isn't um, like munching on a slice of quiche. You know, just totally bland and a bit claggy, but every now and again, a little morsel of flavour. Why is it that Christians specialise in quiche? I don't know. Let's go for pizza. No, anyway, um, or maybe that is the new quiche, really, let's be honest. Um, but a sense of no, heaven is not monotonous. Heaven is not kind of... An episode of Countdown. Uh, I, I don't know where that's just come from. <laughs> you might love Countdown. <laughs> Heaven is vibrant. God's kingdom is glorious. There's this just incredible overflow of, of joy. That's what we've got to look forward to. But also, we get a flavour of it now. Maybe God just wants to refresh us in that way too. Heaven is not a library where the angels just say, shh, do your homework. Uh, we, we get to experience like the most vibrant of parties. And I believe John wants to remind us of that, that we might be confident. We get reminded of a second thing, a second spiritual reality. And it would be nice to erase this next part from the scriptures it would be nice just to jump over it because in the next section we get reminded of something that we already know about we know that this is christian doctrine we know that this is what the bible teaches us but it's not pleasant for us to think about and that is hell we get the reminder of heaven 
This is revealing something to us about hell. And uh, it's not pleasant to think about. Interesting that, that the word hell so frequently crops up in figures of speech. Ah, oh, he had one hell of a game. Um, what? What's, what's that about? Um, so it can crop up in figures of speech, but we don't talk about the reality that's behind that word. However, it comes across here. There are... There are three angels that uh, make some proclamations. The third angel in particular uh, draws our attention uh, to this. And it reveals to us what God teaches here in Revelation, but also throughout Scripture, is that hell is real. Heaven is real. Hell is real. A lot of the language that's used is obviously symbolic, so that we don't know that it's actually describing literally what hell is like. But it's clear that by use of that vivid language, it's telling us that hell is real, and hell is a place of torment. Hell is not the exciting house party that your parents have the common sense to say that you can't go to. Oh, but it looks so exciting. I'm sure that's where all the fun is. But I have to stay at home. But mum, I'm 35 now. Can't I go? No. Um, it's clearly not that. You know, the, the Bible speaks frankly about things that we don't always want to speak frankly about. Lo and behold, it comes up in the scriptures. And, uh, and we need to look at this. Hell is also eternal. Describes in verse 11 how smoke rises forever and ever. It says there's no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast. It's interesting. It's a, it's a comparison. Wonderfully, there's no rest in that sense for the people of God who worship God in heaven. There's no rest. There's no let up because there's no, there's no point at which we exhaust the goodness of God. And so we're, we're always making fresh discoveries of His goodness. There's always these, these new songs. The Lamb, He's actually leading us somewhere. It's dynamic. It's not static. It's glorious. It's something that we can't yet, we can't imagine how good it's going to be. In the same way that a baby can't imagine what the world is like because it's just in the womb. We can't imagine what heaven will be like. And in that, that sense, whilst we'll rest from our labours in some regard, we're, we're not going to rest from worship. And then we get this description. The third angel makes that pro- proclamation. There's no rest day or night for those who worship the beast. Or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This is grim. This passage also hints at the fact at who hell was prepared for. It's kind of contained in that small word too, near the beginning of verse 10. He too will drink of the wine of God's fury. The issue is if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives the mark on the forehead of, uh, on, his, on the hands. In other words, the, the wine of God's fury is prepared for the beast. It's prepared for also Satan. And all his, um, all his evil angels, if you like. And that confirms what, uh, what Jesus describes in, in Matthew and 25. Matthew, Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. This is a parable of the sheep and the goats. Um, and there in verse 41, 
It says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It's raising this uncomfortable, very stark issue, reminding us that we belong to God or we belong to the beast. Those who belong to God are received into glory. Those who, who belong, who have chosen to belong to Satan, whether they realize it or not, are destined for the place that God has prepared for the devil and his angels. Why do we need reminding of this? And how should the church be in the light of it? Well, this is not here in the scriptures so that we would gloat. About the fate, about destiny rather, I suppose, of those who don't belong to God. It's clearly not a place for gloating. It's not what we should do. Because I don't believe that's what John was doing when he wrote this book. And I believe that because it's not what God is doing. And so when we look to uh, 2 Peter and chapter 3 and verse 9, it says there, uh, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. What is God's desire in all of this? Well, not that, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Well, well, why is that? Because he wants everyone to come into the experience of his goodness. That's the desire of Almighty God. He expresses it to us as well in the Old Testament, in the book of um, Ezekiel. And in chapter 18, we see it there a couple of times. Um, verse 23 to start with. God says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? And very similarly in verse 32 at the end of that chapter. Again, God says, For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. That's the plea. That's the desire of Almighty God. So this is not leading us to gloat. There's no pleasure in that sense, in what's described here. But it's not written either to scare. It's not written to scare people into God's kingdom. It's not written that God is trying to intimidate or coerce let's remind ourselves this book primarily is written to the church written to seven churches back in asia minor kind of through them and through their experience it applies to us as well it's written to us it's written to believers and so well why is it written to us i believe it's written as a reminder to be careful to take sin seriously. To see sin 
for what it really is. You know, sometimes when we think of hell, if we do think about it, we may just about be able to think that certain people, a certain few people, internationally infamous uh, for committing crimes against humanity, deserve to go there. And I think what this passage may be reminding us of is that there's something as even as horrific as crimes against humanity are. This passage is reminding us of something that we, we don't always see so clearly. Crimes against God. So Jesus said that the first and greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second greatest commandment is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. And we see these situations where someone has been so horrifically, unimaginably, unloving towards their neighbour. And we think, yeah, I can just about imagine that that person deserves hell. And then we can fail to realise the issue here is perhaps the, the first and greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God. In that sense, worship him. And there are those who've chosen not to. This reminds us of the seriousness of sin. It's, it's something for us to grapple with. This is a, this is a hard passage. But let's remember that, again, John is writing to real churches. He's writing to churches who are really under pressure. They're under pressure to deny their faith. And in some of the churches, that's begun to happen. And there are people that are so watering down their faith, compromising with the culture around them, that they're very much in danger of turning away from Jesus altogether and denying him, walking away. What do they need to hear? What do they need to be reminded of? They need a wake-up call. Now that happened to the church in Sardis. They were, they were told in, uh, in, uh, in chapter 3, in verse 2, Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. It says, it goes on to say in, in verse 3, Remember therefore what you've received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I'll come like a thief. And you'll not know at what time I'll come to you. It's a, it's a wake-up call. It's startling. Now how do you wake up in the morning? Maybe, maybe like some, you've got your alarm clock, which doubles up as like a CD player or radio, to play your favourite song in the morning as you wake up. It's just kind of gentle. It kind of, it doesn't startle you. It just kind of builds gently. And eventually you wake up and, yeah, it's raining men, or whatever. Um, <laughs> if that's your favourite song. Um, I'm not saying that's mine, actually. I hasten to add. <laughs> I, don't, I don't wake up to that, to that song. Um, but we, we like the idea of being woken up gently, or maybe with the, with the artificial tweeting of birds. Bird song. Uh, Panpipes, I don't know what. Um, my sister used to have one of those traditional, wait, uh, traditional alarm clocks with two bells perched on the top with a hammer that bangs between them. 
And the only appropriate, I feel, the only appropriate way to kind of stop that clock is with a hammer, really. Um, and, uh, and just give it an almighty crack. Because when that went off, it's like just, that's horrible. Right? Steady on. Um, and you want to stop that as soon as possible. You want to just give it a whack. In a sense, reading through this passage, or reading through certainly some of it, and trying to preach through it as best I can. It's a sense of, oh, quick, let's just get this over with. But it's stark. It's meant to be. Vivid language. Not nice to think about. It's, it's meant to be. It's meant to be that kind of rude awakening. Because there could be some in those churches, maybe in Sardis, maybe in Laodicea, thinking, I know what, I'll be better off actually in this life if I deny the faith. Life would be so much easier if I stopped following Jesus. Yeah? That's what I'm going to do. Because actually, otherwise, there's going to be someone who's going to bang on my door, tell me to bow down to Caesar, and if I don't, because I worship Jesus, I could get killed like that guy Antipas in Pergamum. Yeah, I've heard of him. And so there's this temptation to drift away. And actually, the New Testament has a number of warning passages where the writers of the New Testament are saying, don't drift away. Don't do that. Don't give in to the sometimes subtle but quite powerful temptations not to take sin seriously. Well, on what course does that lead? It could lead to just walking away from Jesus altogether. On what course does that lead? The third angel in this middle section of chapter 14. In a horrific way, as it were, is reminding us. Be, be careful. Don't be sleepy. There are, there are other places. Paul writes to the Philippians in chapter 2 and verse 12. And he says to them, work out your salvation with what? Actually, with a measure of fear and trembling. Because who is God? God is awesome. God is pure. God is righteous. God is holy. God doesn't tolerate sin. And if it weren't for Jesus, sacrifice on the cross. This passage is describing where we would naturally deserve to be. If it weren't for Jesus. If it weren't for being able to receive a gift of salvation. Writer to the Hebrews issues quite a few Warnings. Warnings to people who are within the community of the church. This is not about banging people outside the church. It's speaking to people within the church. And Hebrews 2, verse 1. We must pay more, what? Careful attention, therefore, to what we've heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? We are going to move on. Don't worry. Every message in 2013 will not be like this one. Um, but while we're here, I will just say this. Are you being tempted? Now, we all get tempted. We all have moments 
where I know I, I've sinned and I confess my sin and I turn away from it and I come back to God because I want to follow him with all my heart. Okay, we, we all have that experience. No one can say I'm without sin. If someone says that, they're deceiving themselves. The truth isn't in us, John says elsewhere. Okay, so that's the case for all of us. Moments of salvation. By God's grace, God's desire is that we actually learn and we grow and we mature. And the things that trip us up in the past don't trip us up in the future. So again, we need to be careful. But in a more fundamental way, are you being tempted to drift, it, drift away and throw in the towel? Like some in those churches in Sardis, in Laodicea, are you being tempted to think, you know what, I think I'm better off without Jesus. I think life would be so much more straightforward if I just didn't have to do things God's way. Um, I'm just going to make my own way. Well, hear the alarm clock ringing this morning if that is the case. If that is the case, this passage is, a, I believe, a gracious, if quite startling, reminder of what direction that choice can lead to. So we get a reminder of heaven. We have a reminder of hell. Thirdly, the end of the chapter reminds us that there will be a harvest. That there is a final time coming when, as it were, the earth gets harvested. Time itself, history itself, will come to a conclusion. History doesn't meander on aimlessly. There's a climax. There's a point to which the whole of history is being brought. Often the, the visions that we see in the book of Revelation, we've already seen in, uh, in months gone back, the, the vision of the seals, the vision of the trumpets. This last section that we've been looking at doesn't so neatly have a, a title like that, but some have called it the, the, vis, uh, the vision of the seven histories or the, the seven significant signs. And we've been looking at a few of those as we, as we go on. It's, nevertheless, this vision is kind of coming to its climax. As it does so, what does it highlight? It highlights there's, a, there's an end, end to all of this. History comes to a conclusion. God brings it to that final climax. What happens there? Well, there's a harvest. This is also something that Jesus spoke about quite frankly. He spoke about heaven. He spoke about hell. He also spoke about harvest. And so we see that in, uh, in Matthew and chapter 13 in the parable uh, that he, he taught, the parable of the weeds, describing there that the kingdom of God is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. problem was that while that guy was sleeping, uh, an enemy comes along and sows weeds in amongst the crops. And they thought, well, what should we do about this? Should we just rip them all up now and dig up all the weeds? He says, no, no, no. That everything needs to be left to grow. It's only when everything's come to ripen, as it were, that we'll be able to actually see what's wheat and what's weeds. So at, at, the, at the harvest, that will be the time in, to then distinguish one from the other, separate one from the other out. And that's what's described then in, in Matthew 13, verse 30. Let both grow together until what? Until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my 
barn. Here we have a description of the harvest of the earth. It almost appears like there's a couple of harvests going on. There's different angels do different things. But um, it's, it's thought that the first is a, is a harvest of, of wheat, perhaps. The second is specified, this is a harvest of, of grapes. Now the idea in both of those, um, most commentators understand, is this is talking about judgment. This is talking about God bringing judgment. This is a weed. This is a crop. Um, again, it's got uh, descriptions of judgments that are stark and vivid and unpleasant to consider. This harvest of grapes, for example, in verse 19, the angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as a horse's bridle for a distance of uh, 1,600 stadia. Again, vivid, symbolic, highly dramatic language. Well, again, why do we need reminding of this? And how should the church be? How should the church respond in the light of this? Because again, we're just thinking, this, this is speaking to God's people. This is speaking to God's church. We've seen already how the, the church, we need to be confident. We've seen also that we need to be careful. I believe that this part is reminding us also that we need to be compassionate. Compassionate, why? Because there is this definite end point to history. There is a definite judgment that comes. A definite separating out. There's a point of which all decisions are made. And there's no changing. One of the angels earlier on, in fact the first angel that we, we heard about, particularly in this uh, chapter, is described as flying in midair. And he had the eternal gospel to proclaim, to live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language and people. And he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Again, it's this idea, there's, a, there's an hour coming, there's a time coming for all of history after which there'll be no turning back. What are we to do? How are we to be in the light of this? Well, taking on the message of that first angel, we are to be compassionately concerned for the whole world around us. Not just the world, actually, that we live next door to. This is talking about every people, every tribe, every nation, every language. It's universally relevant, this message. It's the eternal gospel that needs proclaiming to be a compassionate people then not hard and heavy with people in each and every situation but actually this is this is something that's always going through our mind it's, this is something that we are always concerned about this is something that we're always praying about this is something that's always flavouring what we say, what we choose to talk about. Why? Because we too, like that angel, would like people 
to fear God and give him glory and worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water and come into God's kingdom and God's people and to be part of that heavenly community that will always be singing a new song because they're always experiencing one level of God's goodness, one example of God's love and care and compassion after another. And so there's to be a a bubbling up of compassion, an eternal gospel to proclaim. However, what's so important to remember and what's so important to remind ourselves of as we look through passages like this of judgment, but have these these stark and vivid descriptions of, of hell and the wrath of God, is to remember this, that we are and never will be more compassionate than God himself. Because when we read these descriptions, drinking of the wine of God's fury, which has been pulled, poured full strength into the cup of his wrath, when we read about this judgment of the winepress of God's wrath, this trampling in the winepress that happens outside the city with blood flowing, oh, this is grim. What does that also remind us of? The beginning of this chapter says, Then I looked and I saw the Lamb. And what did the Lamb of God do? He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was contemplating the cup. And he prayed to his heavenly Father and said, If it is possible, oh God, let this cup be taken from me. I've seen what's inside. And I know it's not good. I know that in there is your righteous, holy fury at every act of disobedience. Every thought of rebellion. Every time. Anyone on this planet has decided to worship something other than you. The punishment for that is found in this cup. So, Father, if it's your will, would you take that cup from me? Yet, not my will, but yours be done. And he gave himself to the will of God. He allowed himself to be arrested. He was taken before the uh, the Jewish rulers, indeed the Roman rulers as well, and he was sentenced to death. Where was he taken? He was taken outside of the city. And in effect, he was trampled. He was beaten. He was bruised. He was spat upon. And why did he do that? Why did God intend for that to happen? Design, indeed, for that to happen? Well, because God is more compassionate than we will ever be. God understands more clearly than we can possibly understand his holy wrath at sin. He understands that in a way we're not going to fully grasp that, are we? Let's be perfectly honest. We'll never know. But because of the Lamb seated on the throne, stood on Mount Zion, because of the Lamb, we don't have to taste this. It's a cup, if you like. Yeah, it was prepared in time past for for Satan and his demons. 
It's not intended that we should know it. So as God's people, as we seek to live life with a compassion for those who don't know him yet, let's remind ourselves, God is more compassionate than we could ever be. This chapter reminds us, as I said at the outset, of spiritual realities. At the beginning, actually quite refreshing, a scene of heavenly glory. As we go through, there's elements in which this is disturbing, but if we remember, chapter 1 and verse 3 in particular Blessed is the one who reads this book, and blessed is the one who hears it and takes to heart what's written in it. If we take to heart what's written in this chapter, we will find ourselves, I believe, more confident in our walk with God. More confident in our worship. More confident that God is working all things through for our good. We'll be more calm in the midst of storms. In the midst of crises. Not because we know every detail of what's happening in this life. But we know. We know where we're headed. We know where God's got us. We know that God just is going to stretch his tent. Stretch his arms over us. For all of eternity. And we'll be experiencing his goodness. We can be more confident. If we take to heart what's written in this chapter. We'll also be a lot more serious. And a lot more careful. When it comes to sin. Because we see where where it leads without Jesus. And we'll be a lot more compassionate and concerned. It will flavour the way we pray. It will flavour the things we say. It will, pray, it will, it will flavour how we live life. It will flavour how we worship God. We're working out our salvation here with fear and trembling. But also with worship. God, we see what it costs you. We see a little bit more, again, the extent of your compassion that extends to the whole world what you are willing to go through, that we might experience what verses 1 to 5 talk about more than chapters, uh, verses 9 through to 12, what have you. So let's take to heart what's written in this. Let's, even this chapter, let's allow it to fuel in us worship of God, who is so far above us and so more compassionate than us. Let's pray.